Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Colleen, here we are going into Daniel chapter 8. Oh, the scary chapter. <laughs> you know, I can't believe that we're eight chapters in. I know. And it's still so wonderful and exciting. I know. I, I was certain that at some point I'd hit a wall and it would be really unfun. <laughs> <laughs> and that just hasn't happened yet. It's so new every time we come to I a agree. new section. So now we're moving into the portion where the language moves toward Hebrew. And we understand that to mean that this is going to deal with the future for Israel. Right? How has reading chapter 8 with that in the background changed the book of Daniel for oh. you as a Christian? Well, I'm going to just say doing this podcast, because I have never been able to sit and read this and feel like it made as much sense as it does to me now. You know, yeah, I've never either. taken the amount of time, I guess. Mm -hmm. But um, I have to say that when I was preparing for this particular podcast, reading the first eight verses of Daniel 8, which are the, like you said, we've gone back to the Hebrew language in the original. Mm -hmm. And the point here is that these visions are now not just giving information from a Gentile perspective about what's going to happen in the Gentile nations, but it's about how these Gentile nations are going to be interacting with Israel. Mm -hmm. I did not know that as an Adventist. And by the time I spent, I you know, I think on Saturday, I must have spent four hours just you know, looking up stuff and reading some commentators and writing notes, and I felt like crying. <laughs> this is so amazing, and it's so clear, and it's so obvious that God was setting up the world for His purposes and for the coming of Jesus mm -hmm. through these Gentile nations, which were interacting with Israel, ultimately. And Israel is the nation through which Jesus comes, and everything is leading up to that. That's just overwhelming to me. I didn't know that. I didn't either. And and on top of all of that, it builds into the confidence that we've already begun to grow as we come to Scripture and test it and read it in its context with a good solid hermeneutic. Oh yes, there's that word. <laughs> this is doing more than than just helping me understand Daniel. It's building that in ways I just didn't even know could still be built up. It, it, the Bible is endlessly trustworthy. You can press it, as I've heard somebody say, you can press it hard mm -hmm. and it doesn't crumble. Mm -mm. It doesn't give way. It just yields more and more strength and consistency. Yes, that's well put. Oh, I just can't get over it, actually. No, I know. And all of reality, everything, even that looks crazy in the world now, makes sense the more you come to trust the words of Scripture. You know, Nikki, we were talking about this before we did the podcast today, and I have to say, a lot of what we're learning about in Daniel right now is making me remember the class I took in college. It was called Music History, but it was really the history of Western civilization and how the thoughts and ideas and the art of the different eras combined together to reveal the different stages of Western thought and development. And it made so much more sense to me than just a purely political, here's where the dates were, here's where the battles were. But, you know, even with that, 
even with that kind of arts and ideas approach to history, which helped me, I never completely had a unified sense of how the world worked. And Daniel is kind of being like one of those textbooks where you have the transparent pages, like in an anatomy book where you'll have one drawing of the of the skeleton, and then you get another drawing that you overlay it, and you see the tendons, and you get another drawing, and you see the circulatory system. I feel like Daniel is doing kind of that mm-hmm. for me in terms of the history of the world. It's like if we understood, when we study Western Civ or ancient civilization, if we understood how that fits with what Scripture says and see the consistency, there is a bigger picture that emerges that is kind of overwhelming. And it's all consistent. Yeah, it's all consistent. And it tells us about this really awesome, sovereign, strong God, not one we need to fear, not one who is putting us to the test to see if we're worthy of enduring some end time (gasps) confusion. And can you figure out the math? Can you figure out the math? Yes. Mm -hmm. And can you withstand everything I'm going to throw at you to try to knock you off course? Right. No. It's a different God. It is a different God. And so we can look down this corridor of history that God gives us in the book of Daniel, and we can see our Father all the way through it and know that every stage and every era that His people have lived in is one that is controlled and governed and managed by Him for His purpose, and He cares for us. Yes, and He put us here now by His design for His purposes and for His glory and determined in advance that we would be here and that we would be doing Daniel today. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So, Nikki, we're looking at Daniel 8, 1 to 8, and many of you know that Daniel eight fourteen is the much dreaded, crucial, key, central text upholding the investigative judgment. We're going to look at that next week. But this first part of the chapter gives us the background to understand Daniel eight fourteen. So we're going to look at these first eight verses and talk about them, but could you read them, please? Sure. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself." While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, 
But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So here we are with two new beasts, except there's certain characteristics about these beasts that are reminiscent of two of the beasts in the previous chapter. Now, I just want to say, before we start looking verse by verse through this, we had an email this week, Nikki, that was asking us about our last podcast. And he was actually saying, the writer was saying, why would you think that those beasts in Daniel 7 are representing actual kings. Why wouldn't you think there's spiritual forces, spiritual kingdoms, spiritual powers just at work? I can see how the statue of Daniel 2 is real kingdoms, but what about those beasts in Daniel 7? Why can't they just be spiritual? And and he was kind of upset. Well, the answer to that's quite simple, because the text says that they're kings. Well, that's the thing. Daniel was told they were kings. And if Daniel's told they're kings, we have to read that to be kings. Now, I went back and checked all of um, chapter 7, and the nations aren't identified as they are for the statue, but he was told they were kings. And we can see from the characteristics of the statue that they are the same nations as those represented in the image. Because, for example, let's take that second one the silver chest with the two arms. Somebody asked me this in a different email. Well, if you think that the two legs of iron might be a division of the kingdom, then what do the two arms represent? Well, actually, that's quite simple. And we see that in the beast in Daniel 7. That was the dual kingdom of Media and Persia. And we see in Daniel 7 that that beast, that bear, that lumbering bear that represents this kingdom, has one shoulder much higher than the other. And now we're going to see in chapter 8 that the first beast in this new vision is a ram with two horns, one of which is much higher than the other, and it actually says that the higher one came up later. When we look at history, and you see, this is the beauty of these visions. They actually have historical dates and circumstances that we can look back at and see their fulfillment. Mm -hmm. When we look at the kingdom of Media and Persia, the Medes conquered Babylon. Remember, it was Gobrias the Mede that tunneled under the wall and took the city when Belshazzar was having his feast and had the handwriting. So we can look back in history and see these things, and Media began as the dominant power in this shared authority in this new kingdom. But over time, Persia grew and outshone media for power and strength. So, these visionary beasts are representing this kind of thing rather accurately, and it goes consistently through all of them. Now, when we look at Daniel 8, we're not going to see all four beasts like we saw in Daniel 7, and we're not going to see all four kingdoms as we saw in Daniel 2 also. We're just going to focus in this chapter on two. Now, you might say, how do you know what they are? Well, I'll tell you how we know. We haven't gotten there yet, but the second half of Daniel 8 is very specific and identifies them. We're told right up front that in verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And in verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So we know from the actual interpretation of the dream what nations, what empires we're looking at in Daniel's vision. And we can 
kind of take that back with us as we apply it. There is actual historical evidence to say this is true. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in actual knowable data. And now we're going to see God's message to Daniel, astonishingly, for the nation of Israel, which is still in captivity in the nation of Babylon. And it's interesting because this vision doesn't begin with Babylon. It begins with what's going to come next, and Daniel is being shown what's coming next. And I think that's just so gracious of God, so amazing. And it's so interesting that when you think about the language, that Daniel 7 was in Aramaic, so all the Gentiles could read and understand if they were desiring to do so. They could see the nations of the Gentiles. But now we're learning what God is going to do with the nation Israel and how it's going to interact with the Gentile powers. You know, in case anyone thinks that it's a stretch to suggest that the change in language means there's a change in audience, this is actually a pattern that we see in Scripture. I read one commentator who said that we see this pattern reflected in the book of Jeremiah as well. They say the book of Jeremiah was written mainly to Israel, but the one verse in the book that aims at the wider audience is written in Aramaic and contains a powerful challenge to the false gods of the Gentile world. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. That's one verse in Aramaic. So so we have this pattern in scripture where the language does reflect the audience. God doesn't make mistakes. I just find that so interesting. This is something of which I had no clue as an Adventist. Yeah, me neither. Audience, but it's all for us. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And what it means to me. (laughs) So, verse one, what do you see there? Well, I'm always fascinated by the timelines. One of the things that used to drive me nuts about books of prophecy was that I never knew where I was when I was in the book. It didn't seem chronological, and I thought we had to guess at it. But the Bible tells us, and this happened in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king. And so that orients us. And this is obviously going to be now before Belshazzar is taken down. Right. And this is two years after the vision he had in chapter seven. Yes. So we're oriented in time. Mm -hmm. And we know that, that Daniel is seeing this future before he ever goes into King Belshazzar to tell him about the writing on the wall. It kind of gives new understanding to how he could just walk into King Belshazzar and announce his doom. I mean, he was confident not only from the handwriting, which God told him to interpret, Mm -hmm. but he had this vision, and he had the vision of Daniel 7. He knew what was coming. He knew, and he knew when Belshazzar offered him all of his (laughs) kingdom or whatever that offer was. The purple coat, the third in the kingdom. And he said, keep it. He had a bigger worldview that was sustaining him. And that's what scripture offers all of us, actually. It does. That's what this book is doing for me, in a sense, now. Mm -hmm, Me too. I have never seen it this way. So, we see that it's the third year of Belshazzar, and Daniel is now going into verse 2, and he's looking, and he sees what? He's all of this sudden transported to the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam, which was In Persia. Essentially unknown to him. Yeah. He's in Babylon when he receives this vision. Let's just not get that confused because I didn't used to actually read this verse and see that. Mm -hmm. I thought that somehow 
he was in Susa. No, he's looking in vision Mm -hmm. and he's in the palace. He's still in Babylon under Belshazzar. He sees himself in the palace of Susa, the citadel of Susa. And what is that? Susa is a Persian city. It's where Esther and Mordecai lived. That's right. And that was a hundred years after Daniel's vision. So when the Jews had been delivered from their exile by the media Persian King Cyrus and had been sent back to the land, not everybody went. A lot of Jews remained in that area in Babylon, but they were now free to leave. And as this new nation came and took over, many of those Jews found themselves under the control of Medo-Persia and actually moved into the Medo-Persian cities. So that's where we find Mordecai and Esther a hundred years later. It's kind of interesting that God is using Medo-Persia, the next empire. He used them not only to deliver the Jews from captivity in Babylon, but he also used his people, his Jewish people in that citadel of Susa to deliver his nation when a nefarious actor tried to wipe them out and got the king without his full knowledge to sign a decree of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed as we learned with the lion's den, to wipe them out. So God is using Medo-Persia in a very specific way. He will deliver the Jews from Babylon, because of the end of the Babylonian Empire, Cyrus will send them back. He will use Medo-Persia to destroy Babylon, who had conquered his people, and he will also save his people in the future by Esther and Mordecai's intervention. You just gave me a connection I never had before. I always wondered, why didn't King Xerxes just cancel his decree? that the Jews could be taken down, but he didn't. He said, you guys can defend yourself. Right. That surprised me. I didn't think that was good enough, but it was that law that cannot be changed. Laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. That's That's exactly what it was. So you were saying something about this business of being transported in a vision. There was another prophet who also did that. Yeah. The prophet Ezekiel was transported from Babylon to Jerusalem in his vision of the temple. So we see this happening. And if you think about even the apostle John on the island of Patmos, This is, again, we see patterns all throughout. These are not just random things. These are not just the ramblings of various people thinking they are hearing from God. These are prophets who are hearing from the same God over a period of years, similar situations, and God confirms his identity as the author of these by the way he deals with the prophets Mm -hmm. and the way he fulfills prophets' words with new prophecies and new acts in history. Then we come to verse three. Then I lifted my eyes and looked and behold, a ram, which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other with the longer one coming up last. It's so similar to that bear, isn't it? It is. It's interesting too, that the ram butted westward and northward and southward. So he is coming up from what was then known as the east And we kind of have a hint of where that was from these first couple of verses. Persia was the east of the the known world then. Because I am so weak in my ancient history, I looked up some commentators on this passage and to just see what what it was that Medo-Persia was doing. And it became more clear to me that Medo-Persia 
if it had pushed east, it would have actually ended up in India and Pakistan. But as it was, it dominated even more of the known world than even Babylon had. As it pushed northward, it captured territory as far north as the Caspian Sea and what is now known as Armenia. It pushed westward into Babylon and even further, and it pushed southward into North Africa so that it captured Ethiopia and Egypt. And it was intending to capture Europe. It was intending to capture Greece, but that's where it met its fatal end. (laughs) But I did want to say one thing about the fact that it's pictured as a ram, where in the previous vision, it was pictured as a lumbering bear. Now, The ram is interesting because historically there is an ancient Persian religious book, which I cannot pronounce, but it's something like Bundahesh. And in that book, it recorded that the ram was the guardian spirit of the kingdom of Medo-Persia. It was portrayed in the form of a ram with sharp pointed horns. And I thought this was so interesting. The Persian king would wear a ram's head on his head when he stood before his army. (laughs) So there was no mistake that this is representing Medo-Persia. Yeah, it's interesting. It's as if the bear is describing the nature of the kingdom, but the ram is getting really specific about the kingdom. Yeah. I found um, one note from the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge that says, The Medo-Persian Empire, of which a ram was the ensign and a ram's head with horns, one higher than the other, is still to be seen on the ruins of Persepolis. They actually have a ram's head with one horn higher than the other represented in their ruins. That's fascinating, Nikki. I didn't know that. This is why we believe that these are representing actual kings and kingdoms. Absolutely. My lands, who would have thought that God could know the future, right? (laughs) This is why liberal scholars think this was written later. They just want to deny the miraculous the supernatural. And that's the other thing. If we're dealing with spiritual kingdoms, then there's no reason for liberal scholars to push back on the author of the book or the time it was written. But even higher critics Mm -hmm. will look at the text and say, whoa, this lines up with history. That must mean it isn't true. Isn't that fascinating? Anything to ignore the evidence, which actually reminds me of Romans 1, 18 to 21, where God through Paul says, what can be known of God is known through what has been made, his eternal nature and his divine power, and that those who don't recognize him are suppressing him in their ungodliness. And while this is not saying these are evidences in creation per se, these are evidences in recorded history. And when you look right at the data and say, "Mm, can't be true, you're suppressing the knowledge that God has given. So I think that's pretty fascinating. And we're finding it not just in the pages of written history, but in the archaeological artifacts that are coming up out of the earth year by year. Yeah. So what happens in verse 4? Well, like you'd mentioned, the ram was budding westward, northward, and southward, but no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and magnified himself. This was an arrogant and swift beast who took on a lot of territory very quickly with no one to contend with him until verse (laughs) 5. Well, you know, one quick thing about the Medo-Persian Empire before we leave it, 
I found this in some comments on the website Israel My Glory, which was an interesting perspective. There were Christian commentators um, who were commenting on this passage in Daniel. This is where I learned that God had prophesied through Jeremiah that the Medo-Persians would be used to destroy Babylon. Not only did God tell Habakkuk, for example, that he would ultimately destroy Babylon because they would discipline his people, but Jeremiah was told that too. In Jeremiah 51.28, he said, prepare the nations for war against her, the kings of the Medes with their governors and deputies and every land under their dominion. He is letting Jeremiah know that the Medes, the Persians, would expand far beyond Babylon to every land under the dominion of the Medes. And then he tells Jeremiah that Medo-Persia is becoming dominant to destroy Babylon. And here's what he said, sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. He is now going to destroy the people who he had set up to discipline his own people, Israel. And he's sending the Medes and the Persians in to destroy Babylon. And now the Medo-Persian empire is about to be destroyed as well. So in verse five, what do we read? While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. It's a creepy image. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) As a levitating goat. (laughs) (laughs) You know, being up off the ground like that, it gives the picture of a swift, almost supernatural approach and success. Absolutely. And in verse 6, what do we read that this goat does? Well, he came up to the ram that had the two horns and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. So we see this shaggy goat, which, by the way, is identified in verse 21, farther into the chapter, as Greece. And we read in verse 21 that that big horn is the first king of Greece. So we see Greece coming up against this ram that represents Medo-Persia, and he's enraged. Now, history tells us some of the reason for that rage. The ram had been pushing, as we said, northward, westward, and southward, and was attempting to overtake Greece. Well, here comes the shaggy goat of Greece and stops that ram before it can actually happen. We know from history that King Xerxes of Persia attempted to invade Greece, and in a battle at a place called Thermopylae, Medo-Persia was defeated by the armies of Alexander the Great because Alexander the Great's armies were small, swift, and highly trained, where the Medo-Persian armies were much bigger, much more ponderous, less well-trained, and as we've said before, they even took their families with them into battle. So here's Xerxes trying to take this large, ponderous, thousands and thousands of persons strong army through a narrow passage, and Alexander's men came in much swifter, much better trained, and just devastated the armies of Medo-Persia, and they were never able again to try to take the western part of the world. Wow. So this is this goat filled with rage, charging at the ram. And I just want to say one other thing that I read that was pretty fascinating to me. 
partly because I, I was starting to put this together with what I had remembered of my history of Western Civ. This is by J. Vernon McGee. He says, This particular battle where Alexander's men defeated the men of Xerxes of Medo-Persia, this marked the last effort of the East to move toward the West. No great advance was ever made again. It is true that the great hordes of Muhammad, the Moors, came up through Spain, but Charles Martel stopped them at the Battle of Tours. It is also true that the Turks attempted to come through the East through the Balkans, but they failed. That's so interesting to me, Nikki, because when I took Western Civ, I realized, I learned in that particular class, that there's a whole different way of looking at reality from the mindset or the worldview of the eastern part of the world to the western part of the world. And with the conquest of Greece, the known world, the civilized world, took on a decidedly western flavor. And it was Greece that developed the democracies and higher math and literature and things that we recognize today that we still study in school. In fact, Aramaic, which had been the trade language when we started, Daniel, in the time of Babylon, that was the actually the native language of Persia, which I thought was so interesting, which is Eastern. But with the coming in of Alexander and his push through society and making it Greek instead of Medo-Persian, he brought in his new language of Greek. And the world took on a decidedly Western flavor. So everything we know about Western civilization, there was kind of like a watershed, kind of at that battle at Thermopylae, Mm -hmm. where the West defeated the East, and Alexander was the one who led that charge. The fact that he came after him with mighty wrath, it was interesting to read some of the commentators' statements about that. Apparently, we know Aristotle taught Alexander the Great. And apparently Aristotle believed in slavery and he believed that slavery was natural for anyone who wasn't a Greek. Interesting. And that all barbarians, is what they called non-Greeks, were slaves by nature and consequently it was only right that the Greeks should rule over barbarians. And so this was just a prejudice that was built into Alexander the Great. And so when the Medo-Persians defeated the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. This just created this intense rage and wrath against them. And some have suggested that this is kind of what's on display there in that conspicuous horn. Wow. And being so angry. Being so angry. And then in scripture, horns can often refer to strength Mm -hmm. and political and military power. That's really interesting. So here in this vision, Daniel is seeing hundreds of years before it happens, what is going to go on between Greece and Medo-Persia. <laughs> and that rage that was developed by that Battle of Marathon, which ended up being settled forever at Thermopylae later, mm-hmm. is prefigured here. Yeah. Yeah. In verse 7, I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. Like you said, never again has the east come. That was the end of that. Yeah. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Over and out for Medo-Persia. It's just so perfectly in line with history. 
great conquerors have taken down nations without being enraged at them. It was tactical. Right. They were growing their empires. This guy's enraged. It's really interesting to me. We have a clear, decisive victory prefigured by the battle between these two beasts, identified as Medo-Persia and Greece. We have history validating that this is so. And then in verse 8, we have a little bit of the future of what happens because of Alexander's rage, swiftness, and incessant taking of land. What is that? Well, he magnified himself exceedingly. It's said that he even had his military prostrate themselves before him, and he claimed to be a descendant of Zeus. (laughs) Uh, But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And doesn't that sound like the four heads of the leopard? It's the same nation. It's the same empire. Now, one of the things, just from a cultural perspective that happened as a result of Alexander's conquests and these four generals taking over and dividing the kingdom is that Greek culture spread throughout the world. And we've already talked about the fact that Alexander brought Greek in that ultimately replaced Aramaic as the trade language in the nations. These four generals continued what we called Hellenizing their territories. And Hellenizing is just a word that means spreading of Greek culture. So, Greek culture, language, and religion began to spread in the cities that were being conquered by these Greek generals, after Alexander even. Now, one thing that's important to help us understand the time frame, at least for me, I'm going to say this because if I had understood this connection in college, this all would have made better sense to me. (laughs) So, I'm finally piecing things together. This happened, this thing with the Greek culture expanding into the world happened in the intertestamental period. So, after Israel is released from Babylon, after they go back to the land, at the end of the book of Malachi, there's silence from God for 400 years between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. During that silence that we have in the Bible, that 400 years of silence, all of this stuff is going on with Greece. So, Israel is developing its own new nation. So, Nikki, you had a really interesting quote from John MacArthur about what went on with Israel after they left Babylon and went back into their land during this time of Hellenization. Yeah, so John MacArthur was talking about how all of these events in history prepared the way for the fullness of time and the coming of the Messiah. And one of his points, he says, the time was right religiously. During the Babylonian captivity, Israel once and for all forsook the idolatry to which she had so often fallen. Despite their many other sins and failures, including the national rejection of their own Messiah, no significant number of Jews has ever again turned to idolatry. Also during the exile, Jews developed synagogues, which they used as places of worship, as schools, and as courts. In addition to that, they at last had the completed Old Testament assembled by Ezra and others after the return from Babylon. These features facilitated the proclaiming of the Messiah's gospel among the people of Israel. Now, I find that really interesting and superimposing that information onto the fact that when these four generals took over the Greek empire and divided up the territories, two of these four divisions affected Israel or the Jews the most. And these two were the Seleucids in Syria. And if we know from the map, Syria is just north of Israel, still is today. 
and the Ptolemies in Egypt, which is just south of Israel. Now, Judea, the nation of Judah, or Judea, where the Israelites went back and the temple was built again there, they were bounced around over these years between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So, for about a hundred years, Judea was ruled by the Ptolemies of Egypt. So, they were actually under the control of the general in charge of Egypt and the territories of Egypt. Now, the Ptolemies tended to be tolerant of the Jews, and they allowed the Jewish priests to administer Jewish law to the people. So, they were kind of left alone and able. That's probably when those synagogues flourished and Mm. their religion became established and their national identity grew up. But then, from about 200 BC onward until the Roman conquest of Greece, the Syrian Seleucids began to force Hellenization, and many young Jews became enamored with the Greek lifestyle and religion. But those who remained faithful in the midst of all this Hellenization and all this expansion of the Greek culture into the territories where the Jews were living, those who remained faithful became known as the Hasidim or the pious ones, and they are the ones who became the forerunners of the Pharisees in the New Testament. Now, that was just helpful to me because, you know, as an Adventist, I had no idea of how all these movements within Judaism happened. I knew about the Hasids because when I was in college, that amazing book by Chaim Potok came out, The Chosen, which was a story about two, one Hasidic Jew and one an Orthodox Jew who were living in New York and they were friends. And so, it, there was a lot of Jewish culture in that that I did not understand before. But come to find out, this is still alive and well within modern Judaism, especially Orthodox Judaism. And this is where it came from. It came from this intertestamental period. Now, another thing that's really interesting, and we'll learn more about this next week, but this forced Hellenization, this forcing of Greek culture on the Jews, it came to a head with a certain man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And we will learn more about him next week, but he really tried to force Judah and the Jews to become fully Greek and to leave their Jewishness. And he didn't succeed ultimately, but the Jews went through a terrible time of persecution under the hands of Antiochus. So, it's fascinating to me that God shows Daniel right near the end of the Babylonian Empire. He shows Daniel what the two nations are that are coming next and how they would affect his people. I mean, this is a really specific prophecy about the nations that are going to come in and affect the future of Israel. And you said this happened during the 400 years of silence, yes, which is interesting. I've always heard it called the 400 years of silence, but in a way, God wasn't silent because he told Daniel and they had that. They did have that. I have often thought it must have been a very interesting thing to live as a believing Jew, believing the scriptures that they had, believing Daniel, and to have nothing happened from God for 400 years. Now, I think about the age of the United States. 1776 to now is way short of 400 years. But we look back at our history, and even though we're a very young nation in terms of world nations, there's a lot of history that's already forgotten. And there's a lot of traditions that have been changed and altered. And it's it's amazing to think of a group of people maintaining their identity 
and looking forward to the promises God has made to them for that many years without a new word from the Lord. Those who believed had a lot of faith, and they believed His Word. It's it's really kind of an amazing thing to think about just in terms of time, history, and, the you know, what actually happened in the world. Yeah. Now, the Apostle Paul was a Hellenistic Jew, correct? Yes. yes. And part of what I find fascinating there is like Daniel, who was in Babylon and influenced by the culture, but who remained faithful to God, you have the Apostle Paul, who was a Hellenized Jew, and God was able to use that in his ministry to the Gentiles. And so, I know in Adventism, there was so much pressure to not touch the culture. Right. And yet, we have these examples of people in the Bible, who lived during very specific times, which God chose for them, who could connect with their fellow humans while remaining faithful to God and God using them in the midst of where they are. It's not culture that makes us unclean. It's not what's outside us that makes us unclean. It's our hearts before God and our nature. Yes. And our nature is that we are born dead in sin. Paul the Hellenistic Jew from Tarsus, who was trained by the Jerusalem rabbi Gamaliel, he is the one who tells us very specifically that we are born dead in sin under the influence of the spirit that is at work in the children of disobedience, by nature children of wrath. That is who we are by nature. There is only one solution for us. We have to somehow not be dead. We have to become alive, and we can only do that through our Lord Jesus, who was born into a Roman world, Hellenized by Greek language, Greek culture, and facilitated by the Roman buildings and the Roman roads and the Roman civil engineering. And Jesus was born into this highly pagan, highly sophisticated Gentile culture right on schedule. The son of David from the tribe of Judah, preserved by God himself through all of these things that happened to the nation so that we can know him and we can be saved because of his shed blood and because of his burial and resurrection on the third day to show that his sacrifice for our sin was sufficient. He broke the curse of sin that was on all of us. And if you haven't trusted him, what better time than now? We can spend eternity with Daniel and with the other prophets who knew the Lord in the middle of great hardship. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue through Daniel chapter 8 and take back verse 14. (laughs) And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.